Hello everyone, I'm Olivia. And I'm Bella. And we're prevention educators for New Directions, the Domestic Violence Shelter, and Rape Crisis Center of Knox County, Ohio. You're listening to Table Talks. We hope that listening to this podcast gives you an inside look into the world of domestic and sexual violence. Throughout this series, you will hear from individuals from all walks of life, from preventionists, advocates, and community partners to survivors themselves. Thank you for joining us and enjoy the podcast. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Table Talks. Today, we have Lynn Alexander, who is the current Deputy Director for Virtual Programs with the Ace and Arrow Alliance of Central Ohio. And just to give a little bit of a background on the alliance, so the Ace and Arrow Alliance was founded in July 2020 and is Ohio's first organization to focus specifically on the asexual and aromantic community. Um, But something that I read that I thought was really interesting on your website is that you are one of less than five organizations in the Midwest um, that kind of talk about asexual and aromantic relationships. Is that correct? Yes, that is correct. That's wild. Um, That's not a lot. No, and, and, and quite honestly, I would be I would be super surprised if there are more than a handful of other organizations that are operating, you know, in the United States at this point. Um, it's, wow. you know, something that often gets kind of, um, I don't want to say lumped in, but like included as part of, um, you know, broader LGBTQ umbrella organizations. Mm-hmm. But um, I think it's really rare to to have something that maybe isn't like a small student group, but is an actual organization going out and, you know, doing trainings and having events. So I'm really honored to be a part of that. Um, And I'm really, really honored to be here today. Well, we're happy to have you for sure. Um, And so like I, well, I didn't mention this, but something that I want to mention, and this is kind of, I guess, calling myself out a little bit, um, before our previous podcast that we had done actually last year for Sexual Assault Awareness Month, um, I heard very little about asexuality. Um, and actually, I had never heard about aromantic um, relationships before either. So the reality is, is there are likely many people listening that might be extremely unfamiliar with the terms asexual and aromantic. Um so would you be able to give those listening kind of a little bit of an idea of the meaning behind those terms? Yeah, absolutely. So um, just before we get started, I do want to just kind of preface this with um, this could be a book, this could be a documentary, this could be a whole, you know, academic class of, of talking through all of the different aspects of um, being asexual or aromantic and and everything else. So if you want to do a deeper dive, I would encourage you to go on our website, um, which is acearrowalliance.org. Um, we have a number of different resources and um, sort of basics that you can see, you know, written out. Because for, for some people, they're not going to be able to process it you know, fully from a podcast, but also if you want to do a deeper dive, a lot of um, resources and connections there. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm going to do my best to give you kind of a basic idea of asexuality first, because I feel like for some people it can be kind of easier to understand if I start um, breaking down um, asexuality. So be somebody who is asexual um, does not experience sexual attraction. and this is something that I think a lot of people, uh, you know, when I when I speak with other folks who are, you know, in the in the ace spectrum, um, for a lot of us, we we kind of internalize when we're very young, kind of like this is what normal is, and my experience is what everyone else is experiencing, and everyone else is kind of going through the motions. But when you you know start really diving into what it means to be asexual and, and, and kind of trying to understand that, you, you start to understand that other people do have a different experience. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of folks within the asexual spectrum, asexual spectrum 
who, you know, may have different experiences. I don't want to make it seem as though there is just like one way to be asexual, but generally in the community, there's this idea that you don't experience sexual attraction. Does that mean that people who are asexual never um, are sexual in practice Mm -hmm. or to, or, you know, physically, um, sensually engage with their partners? That's not true. There may be a variety of different reasons why somebody who is asexual may do that. Um, But um, it could be anything from wanting to have a child to, you know, liking that experience of intimacy um, to, um, you know, liking physical stimulation. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I think there's a lot of conflation of asexuality with, perhaps a lack of libido or a lack of drive to have sex. Yeah. Um, and that is not always the case. There are some folks who are asexual who do not. Um, but there are plenty of uh, folks who are asexual who do experience that, but perhaps don't have a outlet or they don't have a desire to engage in that with another, another person. Gotcha. Um, and so... But that doesn't mean that people who are asexual may not want intimate relationships, whether this is platonic or romantic. Mm -hmm. And this is part of the reason I went with asexual first is because um, a lot of people who are in sort of asexual and in romantic communities find the split attraction model um, Mm -hmm. to be useful in describing their experiences. So the split attraction model is uh, idea that there are different types of attraction. This is a very simplified version of this. There are different types of attraction, um, and they could, you know, encompass many different things. Um, whether it is sexual attraction and you know, being sexually attracted to another human being and wanting to engage in, in some kind of sexual practice with them. This could be a romantic attraction where you want to have a romantic, intimate relationship with somebody could be platonic, could be aesthetic attraction, right? Mm. So, um, you know, one of the ways I really like to describe platonic attraction is if you've ever met somebody and like, wow, I really like this person. I want to be like best friends with this person. (laughs) That is kind of like a great experience of like that platonic spark where you really just want to be kind of with this person um, in that way. and a lot of people who, you know, may not experience sexual attraction or romantic attraction may uh, all may experience aesthetic attraction, which is another kind of aspect of the split attraction model. And so that's knowing and seeing and, and, and finding someone to be physically attractive and knowing that they are physically attracted to you, but maybe that's kind of as far as it goes. And mm-hmm. the pleasure of, of seeing somebody who, you know, um, is, tra- is attracted to you, whether that is um, in a way that's kind of like traditionally the kind of way we would think about um, kind of uh, I don't want to say stereotypical but maybe stereotypical ideas about beauty which of course you know encompass um, our social aspects in there too so like um, you know beauty is very much like within the white gaze within the heterosexual gaze within the cisgender gaze but it also might be outside of those gazes, depending on um, you know what that person particularly is into. Mm-hmm. So, aromanticism is kind of I don't want to say the other half of the coin, but kind of the other half of the coin to asexuality, where somebody may um, be aromantic and not experience romantic attraction, but may experience other types of attraction. Um, okay. You know, that's a really big stereotype that kind of comes along with the community is that if you're ace, you're arrow, and if you're arrow, you're ace. Mm -hmm. And and, and that kind of, I think, frankly comes because for a lot of people, their sexual attraction, if there's somebody who experiences sexual attraction, kind of falls in the same line as romantic attraction, Mm -hmm. right? So for a lot of people, it'd be maybe very hard to kind of untangle those. They're kind of two things that are kind of most people kind of go together like peanut butter and chocolate or peanut butter and jelly i like peanut butter (laughs) (laughs) love peanut butter um but for other folks they may find the split attraction model to be useful as a way to kind of describe where they are Mm -hmm. um and you know for a lot of um ace ace and aromantic people 
Um, they may go together, but for, for a lot of folks, they may not. So, you know, there is a large proportion, I would say, of people in the East spectrum who experience romantic attraction and want to have romantic relationships. And then there are people who are on the aromantic spectrum who um, want to have um, relationships, but maybe not in the romantic sense, and who do experience sexual attraction and um, desire to be engaged with another person in a, in a sexual sexual way. Um, okay. And the other thing I will say is that um, I keep talking about these as spectrums. That's a really simplified way of looking at it. I mm-hmm. think even within like LGBTQ plus communities, we're starting to look at things within like matrices or universes. And so that's kind of where I would say, um, you know, each, you know, aromanticism and asexuality are all little universes in and of themselves. So um, there may be folks who are um, asexual and, you know, be asexual in a way where they do not want to have sexual partnerships. There may be folks who are, um, who interpret it differently there may be folks who, um, quite honestly, with like asexuality and aromanticism, um, there's folks who may find themselves feeling like um, they identify in part with the community, but may still experience um, attractions either transiently or sometimes. Um, and so that's where terminology like, um, gray asexual or Mm -hmm. demi-romantic people kind of come in. So, um, demi is a, a, a prefix that, um, kind of indicates somebody may have those attractions, but not for everybody. And, um, oftentimes requires like a very close relationship. Um, in order to uh, feel those attractions. So if somebody is demi-romantic, for example, mm-hmm. um, they may say need to have a very um, close relationship with someone before they can start to experience romantic attraction. And, and that's not to say that, they, that this happens with everybody because, mm-hmm. um, you know, we were talking a little bit before the podcast started and, you know, I said, oh, you know, there's people who've said to me, you know, isn't that just what it means to be um, a particular gender stereotype, right? And so, you know, I think I've heard from people about, you know, um, demi-romantic or or demi-sexual, right? That these are people, you know, oh, doesn't everybody just wanna have like a very intense, intimate relationship with someone before any kind of attraction springs? Mm -hmm. Like, isn't that just what it means to um, not be sexually promiscuous and I would push back on that you know that it's not the same thing and that we should be you know I think it's particularly important when we're supporting survivors right to support all kinds of um, expression and self-identification yeah. um, that is gonna you know help someone tell their own story and, and, and live their truth um, Absolutely. and you know one thing other kind of point I want to hit before we we kind of move on from the uh you know these are what labels are kind of conversation from Mm -hmm. the conversation which is important but not the most fun part um is that there are certain individuals who may be survivors of um different kinds of intimate partner violence or domestic violence relationship violence um who may find um, a space for themselves within aromantic and um, asexual spaces. Mm-hmm. Um, there are some folks in the community to kind of push back on that because, um, you know, they say, you know, they don't want identity to be linked to trauma, right? Because this is something that um, we see a lot from uh, medical providers or, you know, social service providers, right? That there's this sense that like, if you're asexual or aromantic, that this is solely a response to trauma and not a legitimate identity. And that when somebody has fully processed their trauma, mm-hmm. they'll be able to kind of move on. Um, yeah. And, you know, I think there's validity in like being nervous about having your, your identity associated with that. But I also think it's really important to open up spaces um, to survivors who 
may need the comfort of a community and a label, even if it's not permanent, uh, because a LGBTQ people plus, you know, LGBTQ plus the opposite too, we, we, we change identities often mm-hmm. and that doesn't mean that we weren't legitimately you know what we identified it just may mean that we um, may move to a different stage in our life we may understand ourselves differently yeah. um and you know it may also be that somebody's experience of, of trauma um leads them to a space where they need this community and this label to really lean into who they really are right mm-hmm. so you know we can't I, I think it's really un, it, it not a good thing to gatekeep the community because i just you know think about um you know people who you know maybe survivors who may also um you know have you know in the in the traditional lgbtq way been born a particular way and had not had that um you know maybe the inclination or the idea came to them because uh, it, they were trying to heal after this trauma but it doesn't mean that you know that their identity isn't legitimate and Mm -hmm. you know i would rather um give space for somebody to you know kind of um engage with the community and and learn and live their truth Mm -hmm. um and maybe see them you know leave the community or or um be an ally to the community as opposed to you know being a member of the community in the future then gatekeep and possibly turn somebody away because I think you know there's a lot of people who will do that to themselves Mm -hmm. um I see more frequently people who are like there's no way I could be because at one point x y and z I you know I did something or I felt pressured into something and therefore my identity is legitimate and and that's you know something that we want to you know I think it's more important for us to create these healing spaces Mm -hmm. these welcoming spaces for folks to explore their their sexuality, their gender, um, you know, and and really find healing in that community. I think, you know, for me, that that is kind of community has always been this space of solidarity, particularly, you know, in, um, you know, sexual violence movements, like community is everything. Um, sure. And to deny somebody that would be, you know, in my opinion, like re-traumatizing that. Yeah. Um, on that scale. Well, and I'm I'm glad you brought something up about the, like, people using trauma as a way to say, oh, well, this is why X, Y, and Z. Um, when I was actually looking up some different things, like talking points, and um, one of the things I looked up was, like, the prevalence of sexual violence. And almost everything that I saw had to do with that idea that you just mentioned of saying, well, you know, are you sure that you're not this way because you experienced trauma or you experienced this? And I mean, I just imagine that that would be so invalidating, but also extremely isolating as well. um, If that's the kind of response that someone's met with in that situation. Yeah, and, you know, I think, um, you know, especially for aromantic people, um, not to, not to leave my, my, my ace brethren out of this, but this is the focus of the podcast. Um, you know, I think it can almost be something where aromantic people, particularly based on gender, right? So, Mm -hmm. There's a lot of people who would question the validity of somebody who is um, perhaps, um, I guess the terminology I would say, you know, is somebody who's seen as a woman, who identifies as a woman um, because of all of the stereotypes around femininity and sexuality, right, that 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 kind of person can't legitimately be aromantic, Mm -hmm. right, because, um, you know, that's just... I hate to, it's just, I've always, I always bristle at this. This is the kind of thing that gets me going. I was like, oh, that's just how women are. And it's like, okay. But you realize that, like, there are all kinds of different women. And yeah. not everybody thinks feminine is a woman. And we need to not be kind of shoving everybody into boxes. Um, 
you know, like that, that, that like delegitimizes our identity. And mm-hmm. then also, you know, particularly if we think about, um, like masculine people, men, you know, like there's this stereotype of hypersexuality. That's where I was yeah. going with that. Like hypersexuality and how this is used to kind of minimize their experience of sexual assault and trauma and, and For sure. you know, um, being a romantic almost kind of adds an extra layer to that, right? Mm-hmm. Of like, well, if you're only out there for sex anyway, and you're not really wanting to have um, a relationship, then maybe mm-hmm. what happened to you isn't that bad, right? When yeah. that's naming somebody else's trauma and, and putting your lens on somebody else. Um, you know, I think, I think too, um, a big a big thing that we see in, um, you know, aromantic and um, sort of asexuality communities is this idea of people not believing your identity, right? And so um, using force or coercive action, whether it's sexual or not, to kind of force a situation that is seen as normative. Yeah. Um so, you know, that's another issue that I think, you know, is, 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 there's so much, I would say, experience of trauma on a systemic level, right? Just from living in a society that doesn't understand you and that devalues you and erases you, right? And then there's the, the interpersonal traumas that can then come up. And then to try to push through all that, right, mm-hmm. and go seek support from, you know, whether it's a support group or counseling or, you know, even like a crisis service, right, yeah. that, um, you know, it can, it, 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 the kind of response that you can have if it's somebody saying, you know, oh, well, like, we can talk through the trauma, but like this whole aromantic identity here, I think this is coming from your trauma and this is like fake, is just, yeah. you know, gonna shut somebody completely down. And, Absolutely. Um, you know, what are you supposed to say after that? If you're, you know, you're, you've taken, you know, all of the, it's taken all of this effort and anxiety and stress to even find somebody who you might consider going to and being open about that, yeah, um, to hear that, and and you know, I think that's something that I know uh, from, you know, cr- working with folks who are um, LGBTQ, like in, in a variety of different capacities, um, trying to seek support for for sexual violence um, or domestic violence is that you know there's a lack of disclosure a lot of the time. There's mm-hmm. this idea that if I present myself in a particular way, right, that's the only way I'm going to be able to get services. That's the only way that anyone's going to believe me. And and what that ends up doing is like causing somebody to, you know, stifle themselves and push themselves down and and almost get support for a different version of themselves, like not their true authentic mm-hmm. self. And in which case, how is that going to be like truly transformative and, and healing for your trauma yeah. if you're not able to show up as yourself? Exactly. That breaks my heart, honestly, mm-hmm. that there's probably a lot of people out there that aren't getting the best services possible because people aren't acknowledging that person for who they are. And going off of that a little bit, too, I think it just shows the importance of education and talking about these topics and learning about the community is really important. And how are, how are like, I mean, I think of, you know, I mean, and we're, we're preventionists, so we go into the school systems and things like that, but, you know, we have advocates, we do direct service, mm-hmm. things like that, and, I mean how are we truly doing our jobs if yeah. we're not doing our jobs for all people? Yeah. And people should feel comfortable when they're disclosing yeah. or not feel like they're forced to say certain things just to get the help that they need. It should be provided mm-hmm. regardless. Yeah. And you know, I think, I think so much of what there's just so much, 
having worked a little bit on the advocate side of the house and then also um, um, been in prevention, like there's there's just such a beautiful side to prevention about um, supporting people in, in kind of um, expanding their mind and expanding because it's not just about um, you know I, I a lot of you know the work that goes into prevention is also about empowering people mm-hmm, for sure and um, you know having them know how important they are and how important their sense of autonomy and their sense of worth is mm-hmm. and so you know um, you know first of all, Thank you so much for being out there doing that. Cause I think, you know, that is just so important. Like the, the proactive side is just such a key part that I, I don't think people, yeah. when we think about crisis service, we think about the crisis, we think mm-hmm. about the crisis and really what we want to get to is that place where that crisis is never happening. Yeah. Absolutely. Right? That's yeah. the goal. I hope we get there. I agree. (laughs) It's conversations like this, though, because we take a lot of what we learn talking to you and talking with other people within either this community or other communities and really try to put that into the work that we do because you're right, that proactive piece Mm -hmm. is so important, but we got to make sure that we're having these conversations. Yeah. Because we can always learn. We can keep learning. Yeah, that's for sure. Yeah, that's for sure. And do you notice a difference in how sexual violence is received or perceived in our society based on the sexuality of different individuals when we're talking about either asexual individuals or aromantic? Yeah, I mean, I, I alluded to that a little bit in the, in the previous question, but I think, you know, there's like, um, particularly for, for aero people, there can be like a minimization or... Yeah. Um, you know, because they're, they're hyper-sexualized in many ways, it's, you know, something that is not that big a deal or, you know, particularly if you're, if you're somebody who is, um, of any kind of sexuality, right? If you're somebody who is consensually engaging in consensual sex or that is more anonymous or, um, something that, you know, the hookup culture, I'm putting that in scare quotes, um, <laughs> that we, you know, that we hear about, or if somebody, you know, um, there's this idea of, uh, you know, from our, our, you know, our roots in the United States are so puritanical that there is, you know, I, I would say, you know, we already have um, a culture, you know, a rape culture that is um, so focused on victim blaming and erasing survivors in that way that any extra step or any extra ammunition that can be used to um, erase somebody's experiences, um, you know, gaslight them or, you know, even from like the, the culture that we are swimming in, like people, you know, I hate to term like they gaslight themselves, but like we tell ourselves, we, we minimize for ourselves, we, you know, have a culture of like we don't talk about talk about it and you know um i think that that's something that's just added to um you know that experience Mm -hmm. um the other thing i wanted to kind of bring into this piece too is that it's it's not just a gender stereotyping too right like i think it's really important and you know the work that we do um at the alliance is that um you know um we have to bring other aspects into this as well, right? So, you know, I can think about, you know, even like the hypersexualization of black women as part of, you know, like a connection into this piece or, or race, right? Like there's a lot of, um, infant, you know, on the asexual kind of side of the house, this like infantilization and sexualization of certain um, groups, you know, plays into that. So it just like heightens that stereotyping, that minimization. um, And it just, it prevents the true conversation from being had. Um, But, uh, you know, the other thing I would say is that a lot of, you know, you know, being a white person and, you know, being working for an organization that is a white led organization, right? There's a lot of ideas about asexuality and aromanticism that is dominated by one culture and that's something that we need to do a better job of you know universally at 
detoxing our detoxifying ourselves because even mm-hmm. the ways that we think about um you know sexual violence or relationships and how we prioritize relationships how we um you know think of relationships is coming from this very white cisgender heterosexual model mm-hmm. right where you know um you know, even even to take it from another kind of area in the LGBTQ community, right? Like um, violence between women, right, is something that's like minimized or seen as like completely impossible. Um, you know, there's this sense of you know something else that I think you know particularly is, is often it's an experience of of women who have relationships with women, like this idea of of almost like a corrective sexual assault or a corrective rape mm. um, that can happen as well um, to kind of make somebody whole again or make somebody, you know, fix somebody. Like that yeah. there's some kind of problem with them, why they have this particular identity. You had made a comment about people essentially minimizing their own trauma and essentially like gaslighting themselves out of truly coming to terms with what had really happened and it just made me think of a time when someone really close to me um was you know on the dating scene you know going out doing kind of the casual thing um and she was telling me about an encounter that she had and what i know the education that i've had it was a sexual assault. Um, but she was just, you know, minimizing it and, and just what you're saying. Like, essentially, I think she knew that it that that's what it was, but just, I don't know if it was, didn't, didn't want to admit it, obviously, because that can be something very, very hard to realize that something like that had been done. But you know, I think that person's reaction, like she had reached out to that person after the fact and was like, hey, like this wasn't okay, this wasn't cool. And their reaction, I think, dictated as well how she perceived that situation. Does that make sense, what I just yeah. said? Yeah, that just talks about <laughs> the minimizing that yeah. we're talking about, like, or even the gaslighting to believe that, gaslighting yourself to believe mm-hmm. that something's not real or it's false. And I thought it was interesting how you talked about the reaction of somebody else so even them minimizing it made mm-hmm. that person even think okay well did that really happen yeah so it's just interesting the conversation around that but then i think also like where in society did we get to the point where we minimize the wrong s- yeah people's <laughs> stories or like you just yeah. said the wrong like where did we mm-hmm. start that in society because i mean there's people that no doubt and i mean this is one of my very good friends so like not many people know of this situation but you know there are no doubt people that would have been like well you're out on the dating scene you're you know having casual hookups like some of the similarities that you mentioned with aromantic individuals of like well like almost what do you expect to happen Mm -hmm. and that's just so toxic i think people really like to be investigators truthfully when that's not their position yeah yeah um you know i think too like we have this like dominant culture that has this like very particular idea of what normative relationships are and Mm -hmm. what normative sexuality is Mm -hmm. and how normative relationships and sexualities are supposed to kind of intertwine and so um so not to get super academic on you, but um, Gail Rubin is one of my favorite feminist scholars, and she has um, a concept called the charmed circle. And so there's this idea that if you step out of that charmed circle where sexuality is, right, heterosexual, married, um, you know, um, procreative, things like that, right, that you're somehow deviant. Right. And so mm-hmm. when you become deviant, you basically open, you know, and, and obviously we are not, I'm not saying that, the, you know, I'm Gail Rubin is not saying, right, that you are 
deviant and like a way that you should be punished but that's how society yeah. often like frames you and frames anything that happens to you as like because you were deviant and you stepped out of that charm circle you stepped out of the way things are supposed to be mm-hmm. then whatever happened to you is like it's legitimate and it's not legitimate at the same time right because we love to play this game of like that didn't happen but if it did you deserved it mm-hmm. yeah yeah i feel like victim blaming is incredibly um prevalent even when people are being so subtle about it because it's like the fact of the matter is is nobody i mean nobody i don't care who you are deserves you know to be violated in in any sort of way and so it's just like it's just such a such a daunting thing of like how we start to move away from that when it's something that is so I feel like deep rooted and just intertwined throughout so many different avenues in the society that we're currently a part of. I think it's, you know, slowly starting to change and starting to shift, but it's like one of those things that you want it to happen now. (laughs) You know, you want it to all happen at one time right now, but I don't know, but I know we've talked to a lot about, you know, how sometimes when people, um, aromantic individuals do disclose um, sexual violence or sexual trauma, kind of that minimizing by other people or invalidating by other people. Um, And so at New Directions, our main goal is that we are able to appropriately serve all individuals, all survivors of domestic and sexual violence. Um, But we also recognize that people's needs are different, um, you know, based on the indiv- individual person, whether that's their gender, their race, their sexual identity, sexual orientation, religion, um, anything of that nature. So with this said, and I know you have experience as an advocate, correct? Right. Okay, cool. Um, and I guess kind of drawing on your experience that you've had as, as, a, as an advocate, how can we kind of and not necessarily we as in New Directions, but I guess we as support staff, supporters of survivors, how can we improve our efforts in supporting aromantic survivors of sexual violence? Oh my gosh, this is a really <laughs> question. This is a big, and this is a big question. So I kind of want to frame this with, um, so I'll tell a very, very um, anonymized story um, about um, one of my experiences as an advocate about kind of I think the to not discount the little micro interactions and experiences that you can have with a client so I um, as part of my um, time um, with the um, Connecticut Newberton um, sexual assault crisis uh, service, which is where I volunteer as an advocate. Mm-hmm. Um, we prior to the pandemic, obviously now everything is kind of different, and there is a lot of shifting um, and moving around. And I and that's a whole other podcast for a whole other time. I had yeah. to do um, a hospital accompaniment via phone early in the pandemic. Oh, so okay. that was a very long four hours on the phone. Uh, I definitely tell you, but it was very rewarding to, mm-hmm. to experience. Um, but before the pandemic, you know, I would go to, um, so we, we have a 24-hour hotline, and I, you know, as part of, as one of the advocates, I would be on the hotline, and we would do different kinds of accompaniments. Most of mine were to the hospital. Um, and so I showed up at the hospital in the middle of the night to do an accompaniment. I had my to-go bag and everything ready to go. I walk in and, um, you know, there is the um, examiner nurse is there. Everyone is, is kind of sitting down. Um, and we're really just, we, we spend some time talking with um, the survivor. And the survivor, um, to me as somebody in the community, right, I kind of um, am picking up on little signs. Um, they didn't fully disclose to um, to the um, examiner nurse, right? Um, a lot of what was was you know talking, you know what was 
going on was um, kind of almost like coded language, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I don't engage in that kind of thing. Or this is not something that's very typical for me. And so to me, that was an indication that, you know, potentially that there is somebody um, who might identify as asexual or aromantic or, you know, LGBTQ. Um, and I, you know, earlier that day I had done, done a training. And so I had, ear, I had earrings on um, still that um, were um, flagging for the community, right? That were indicating that, you know, I was a member of the community or an ally to the community. And, um, you know, we, we go through the process. Um, the survivor decides to not go through with the kit. And so the nurse leaves and we have a time to, to kind of to talk and um the survive you know as soon as the nurse leaves the survivor said you know as soon as i saw your earrings i knew i was going to be okay i just got chills wow mm -hmm. wow and so yeah so i would say like never discount those little micro interactions i know folks who you know maybe you wear a pronoun pin or or something like that to indicate just something little signals um, and I was able to have like a really wonderful conversation with the survivor and get them connected with, with different resources. But um, for them, knowing that there was somebody in the room who, you know, was part of the community, who understood, who wasn't going to say, you know, what happened to you wasn't really assault, right? Or um, it wasn't assault because certain um certain things didn't happen. It didn't escalate to a certain level. So that doesn't, that doesn't count as assault. Mm -hmm. um, really, you know, I think from the feedback that I got, like really put them at ease and made them feel like they could really be honest with me and know that they, you know, there were people who really wanted to be there. And, and so I think, you know, not discounting the little kind of um, aspects of yourself or, or even, you know, things that you can put on your, intake materials right that's another you know big thing that can flag for a variety of different communities right like if you you know have a box for pronouns right mm -hmm. that's going to make you know a lot of folks who are in trans non-binary and gender diverse communities feel more comfortable yeah. but even just you know um i can think of you know including something like queer platonic partners on there or platonic partners so i'll i'll, I'll tell you what clear, queer platonic is because i saw you're like Queer platonic. So, <laughs> queer platonic is is kind of it's an intimate relationship that is that is more than platonic, but what a lot of people would not consider to be um, romantic necessarily within the traditional structure or sexual in the traditional mm -hmm. structure. But it's a way to kind of indicate that level of intimacy and closeness and connection. Um, that that for a lot of people they would say is more than you know being just a friend. Um, okay. Although I I'd say you know maybe one thing that we can you know hope to bring to kind of a dominant society from from all of the work that the the Ace and Arrow communities are doing is to really help people question their relationship structures and how we prioritize and. How, create a hierarchy for mm -hmm. relationship structures, right? Where, you know, we are told that the most important relationship in our life is supposed to be our romantic and sexual partner, and we're supposed to marry them and have kids. And there are other ways of being, there are other kinds of relationships that are, you know, very important and meaningful in our lives. Mm -hmm. um, and in questioning that can really hopefully bring all of us, whether we are asexual, aromantic, survivor or not, to a place where we can really get what we want out of our relationships and mm -hmm. really um, feel the kind of intimacy and closeness and love that we deserve and that everybody deserves. Yeah. Um, so I think even even just kind of including stuff on your intake materials, including things in prevention workshops about this so that people can actually know about mm -hmm what it means to have this identity and how, you know, it's legitimate and it's real and there are other people like me out there. Mm -hmm. um, I think, you know, for a lot of ACE and particularly for Arrow folks, I think, you know, there's this sense of, of isolation or not realizing other people 
you know, feel this way or, you know, a sense where you as a person feel all this societal pressure to play act being somebody else or, or you almost kind of convince yourself this is how it is and everybody is just kind of gritting their teeth and bearing through it and this is, you know, how everybody is. Um, that's such a such an important thing because it allows people to have that autonomy and that confidence to go out and have relationships mm-hmm. the way that they want them and not um you know settle for experiences that uh in order to have some kind of connection settle for experiences that end up being harmful to them well i, I just think that that's something too that we've tried to incorporate I mean I think of our presentations and how I feel like they used to be particularly high school mm-hmm. high school and middle school um and how they used to be specifically like healthy relationships romantic relationships mm-hmm. um and we've tried to kind of steer like yeah still acknowledge that but that these can also be friendships family relationships any relationship you can think of. Um, and we even pose the question at the beginning of, of the class sometimes, like, all right, who in here is in a relationship? And, you know, people look and laugh and few people raise their hands. And it's kind of like, well, it's a little bit of a trick question. Everybody in some capacity is in a relationship. Um, so I think we've, we've tried to be really intentional about... And, I mean, but the thing is, I don't even know if we had this necessarily in our minds when we did that but but after talking and hearing what you've said I'm so glad we steered away from that Mm -hmm. because you know I can only hope that that has maybe made someone in in our classes feel a little bit more comfortable and a little bit more heard as well and I think there's still things we can do like incorporating you know, different identities in into scenario activities and that proactive stuff yeah. you were talking about. Because I just keep in the back of my head thinking about the earrings you were wearing mm-hmm. and just thinking for someone to see that and feel so safe in that moment. Yeah, that is that's what we want. And that's know? something that I feel like. And I mean, I don't know if you were even thinking of the fact that you had those on in that moment. <laughs> so <laughs> I mean, no. I think yeah, and I I think that just goes to show that like these things that we are so, I mean, we as, as people are so unaware of, but that someone else is paying such close attention to. I think that's so cool. And I think that's a really beautiful thing too about like, I think we forget how much of an impact we can all have. I think people think it has to be some big extravagant, you know. But something as simple as a proactive intervention on earrings or, Mm -hmm. like you said, putting something on your intake binder. Like, it literally just takes one moment to help someone or to help them feel safe. So thank you for what you're doing and thank you for the work that you're doing and the conversations that you're having and just striving for the work you're doing with the Ace and Error Alliance because it's really, it's making a difference out Mm -hmm. there. Yeah. Thank you so much, and thank you for having me. This has been so wonderful, and you know, truly, I, 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 um, you know, one of the, you know, as somebody who's gone into gender and sexuality and feminism and, and everything else, like I, um, you know, I've been, I, 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 it's funny because um, Rhea and I presented at. Uh, Oh my God, what was it? It, it was a um, LGBTQ-focused um, sexual violence in colleges. There was like a mm-hmm. very, very specific conference um, at um, SUNY last year. And I had this like very beautiful moment where the first person who ever hired me to be a prevention educator as an undergraduate came to the workshop and was there. And it was literally 10 years since she had hired me to be there. And it just makes me remember like, just like how important the work is and how meaningful the work is. And just, you know, um, I, I think, you know, I'm not to discount like the advocate side of the house, but like prevention, like I'm such a big person about prevention and, and being, you know, like proactive and trying to, you know, um, 
try to get us to this beautiful place in the world where mm-hmm. where we're not i mean unfortunately you know it, it means that we'll have to rely on our our sexual violence prevention communities for other things but mm-hmm. before we get to that glorious you know future day where we don't have to worry about this and yeah you know thank you so much for for all that you all do um absolutely you know and and just know that i i think you know i can speak for us and i and i hope i can speak for other organizations you know broadly like you're more than happy to support any kind of initiative any kind of redesign like this is something that you know especially for like sexual violence orgs like Mm -hmm. Leah and I have like a very specific agreement that you know like anything that we can do for sexual violence orgs is going to be either you know low cost or no cost so like Mm -hmm. we really want to be there and so anything having to do with sexual or, or domestic violence, we really want to, um, you know, put our uh, put you know all hands on deck for because yeah. it is so important and it's not and you know particularly for our communities there isn't the same kind of conversation happening around it um, and you know we really want to change that and it's through wonderful collaborations like this that that we're going to be able to, to mm-hmm. have that influence. So yeah. we you know just like. Thank you so much for your patience and, you know, rescheduling this podcast and, and doing everything because, you know, this is this is the kind of thing mm-hmm. that makes me get up every day and be, like, so excited to be part of um, yeah. all of, you know, this wonderful work. And, you know, I hope the two of you know that, like, even just hearing the two of you speak about your experiences and what you go in, it just, it reminds me, it gives me that, like, glow of, like, oh, my gosh, people are out there doing this work and... <laughs> And, you know, I'm not, that's not my day job right now, but mm-hmm. every, I, every time I encounter it, I'm like, oh, I want to go back. We love it. And it, I mean, it's so rewarding. And But the thing is, too, is like, it truly is a team effort. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we're grateful or lucky enough to be able to sit down with people from all different walks of life and learn. Um, mm-hmm. And I really think that you know, this conversation with you today, the the conversation we had last year, like, I, don't get me wrong, I still think I have a long ways to go, <laughs> but, you know, it's so, I'm so grateful that I get to learn, you know, firsthand from people that do the work. I don't get to just learn through the grapevine, you know, yeah. um, and I really think that I can speak for both of us when I say that we truly do walk away from these conversations and we want to be better. We want to incorporate these and, you know, this information in in the work we do. We want to, you know, talk to our advocates and so they can maybe add some new stuff to, to the work they do directly with survivors. So we really do appreciate, um, when you all take the time and sit down and talk with us and we would love to keep doing it. (laughs) So, um, if you guys, if you all ever like have something that, that you're like, Hey, we, we maybe want to do a podcast about this. You have our emails. You just, you just type us a little message and we'll be there. We'd love to do it. Thank you, Lynn, for being here and for everything that you've taught us and everybody listening in. Thank you for being here. And hopefully you learned as much as we did. Please stay tuned for what we have in store and we will see you next time. Bye.